And so, uh, the last week of Jesus' life is known as Passion Week. It's called this because Jesus passionately and willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world when he went to the cross. And today marks the first day of this Passion Week, which is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And it's called Palm Sunday because on, on the Sunday before the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people would line the road, and they're waving palm branches uh, in celebration of his arrival. Right? So, so it'd be like if, if Monday night... Uh, one of two teams are going to win a national championship. So if the Florida team wins and they come home, can you imagine like this school and, and the things that, are, that they're going to do? So it's that kind of celebration because the king has stepped onto the stage. And, and now there's, there's, there's a reason why uh, they're, they're doing this. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But, but I, want, I want to start in John 12. Uh, and, and we're going to be reading uh, John 12. We're going to start at verse 12. And so hear this word. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And, and so that's kind of the story of Palm Sunday. And I want to tie it into a story that comes from Matthew chapter 11. Uh, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach into the towns of Galilee. When John, and now, now this is John the Baptist, okay? Uh, when John, was in, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. Pray with me, if you will, for just a second. Father, we just ask that right now that we know that you're here with us and that you take these words and you apply them to our life, that, that you remind us uh, that, that you didn't just come back then, but you come today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So it's in this story of, uh, uh, from John chapter 12, which is, which is the Palm Sunday story, uh, you, and it's the beginning of Passion Week. And we find ourselves here in the story in John 12, and, and it is that, that people are so enthusiastic about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. They're waving these palm branches. They're celebrating the fact that Jesus has come. Uh, and, and so you wonder, you might wonder, why are they so excited? Well, the answer is because they do see him as the Messiah. I mean, they recognize that he is the long and awaited king, the one that the prophets had been talking about for hundreds and hundreds of years. He has stepped onto this stage. 
Now we know and we understand that, that they knew that Jesus was the Messiah by the way they talk about him in this story. You see, that word Hosanna uh, is an Aramaic word, and it means to save. And so they saw him as deliverer, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us in Jerusalem here. You know, as, as he's coming in, they're waving these palm branches, and they call him the King of Israel. They see him as the Messiah, the deliverer, Savior, the King who has come. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they say this, they're quoting Psalm 118. And for them, as a Jewish, you know, as a Jewish person, this was common knowledge. Uh, as a Jew, uh, on your upbringing, you were called to memorize large portions of the Bible, entire books of the Bible. And so whenever they would quote this Psalm 118, it was plain and clear what they were saying. But the problem... There's a crux that happens here. Their problem is, although they do see him correctly as the Messiah, see, that's his identity, the way they see it. They misunderstand his mission. They see him as Messiah, but they incorrectly see his mission. They see him as Jesus, the Savior, and make no mistake about it. They did know that he had come to save, but not in the sense of what he'd really come to do. His mission was about saving them from their sinful conditions. But what they had in their heads was they wanted saved from Roman oppression. It was in the first century and the Romans ruled with a, with a really strong hand and the Jewish people were a part of this Roman empire and they lived, you know, kind of intermingled. And, and, and it wasn't like they were second-class citizens. They were probably eighth-class citizens. And, and these Romans were extremely hard on them. Uh, they were oppressed, they were overtaxed, they were overworked, and, and they were tired of this heavy hand of Caesar that seemed to be just coming their way with every stroke. But they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and they recognize him as the Messiah. And they had heard of his teaching, they had seen his miracles, and they knew that he was the one that the prophets had talked about. But they had overlooked things like, like, like in the psalm, you know, like Psalm 22. Uh, psalm 22, David wrote over a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it spoke about his crucifixion in detail. And they knew this. They, I mean, they knew it. They just, they just missed it. And they overlooked things like Isaiah 53, which Isaiah wrote over 700 years before Jesus. And it spoke about how the Messiah would come and, and he would die for the sins of the world. Uh, uh, 53, 6, Isaiah 53, 6. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they missed it. You see, for them, the idea of Savior, uh, what they had in mind, uh, what, what he was going to save them from Rome. But the idea of Savior, what God had in mind, he was going to save them from their sinful condition, a way deeper track than what they were thinking. And what happened is, is when their idea of Messiah didn't line up with the, with the mission of what Jesus actually come to do, they turn against him. They reject him altogether. And this is what happens in our story. The very same people who are shouting Hosanna at the first of the week are calling him a criminal by the end of the week. The very same people who say Hosanna shout crucify. These very same people in one week have turned. 
And so if it happens that fast, I think we have to ask why. Um, it's because their concept, it's because their idea, their expectation of what a Messiah was going to do didn't line up uh, with, with what he actually did come to do. And what they had in their heads is not what God intended for Christ when he sent them to die for the sins of the world. And it's because this mission and this expectation did not match that they dismiss him altogether. I mean, they end up killing him. That's how far they go. They turn against him so far, they kill him. Uh, they, they go from helling him as king to, calling him, to killing him as a criminal. Uh, and that's just one short week. And, and, and so in getting ready for this, like, like I do a lot of reading and different things. And, and, and so the title for today is It's Not What You Think. Uh, and, and I had a thousand titles, but, but, but did, you know, when, we went through, when I went through Gabe's funeral, my whole sermon changed. It made me realize some things. And so I think I want to call it, what do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? And I think this is a question that we all will wrestle with at some point of the course of our life, uh, where, where the idea of what we hope God will do or that we think God should do or, or, or that we expect God should do doesn't line up with reality of what really happens. And it's not like God didn't hold up to his end of the deal or his end of the bargain. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes in life, there are times when our concept of what the Messiah is going to do or, or what we want him to do doesn't line up with what he actually does. And it's in these moments, it's in these times, it's in this situation that we wrestle with this. What do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? You see, whenever we, uh, I'm not just talking about in this relationship level with God. I'm talking about this happens on every relationship, not just in a relationship with God, but on every relational level. Uh, whenever we have a certain desire in our head or in our hearts and it doesn't match what's actually delivered, it's unmet expectations. Sometimes what, what we, can, we can be is, is because we desire things that are unrealistic. We put unrealistic expectations on people. And sometimes we put them on the people and, and, and we expect things that are not going to pan out, that, that just are no way realistic. We have it in our head. We get ourselves all worked up for what's going to happen and it don't happen. And, and, and so we find ourselves in this, in this brokenness. Maybe on the other hand, um, it could be something that was, that was delivered, but it wasn't satisfactory. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. They made you a promise, and they've let you down. And so you find yourself here. My life, I find a combination of both, you know, like, 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 like there's, there's, there's some things that I let people down. There's some things that people let me down. So it's a combination. And so what happens is we end up with a lot of discouragement, a lot of discouragement. And you find yourself where desire and delivery don't match up. And you find yourself here. Right? Ever happened to you? Right? You ever have a birthday? You expecting a car? And they show up with a cupcake? <laughs> right? Expectation. And so it happens. It happens. We expect something big. It don't happen, and we're disappointed. And it happens on every level of every relationship. If you're married, I know you understand this, right? 
anniversaries, whatever, you know. Sometimes it just don't work, right? My fa- one of my favorite things I get to do is I, I do premarital counseling. So dealing with, as, as people grow up, you know, especially it seems like everybody wants to get married in medical school. I don't know. It just, it's in the water over there. I don't know. But, but I end up doing a lot of premarital counseling. And, and, and so, um, so they come in, and, and they're in love, right? They're in love like they've never been in love. Big eyes. I mean, you all know. I mean, you've seen it. You know, they come skipping up the sidewalk, holding hands, right? And, and they say, you know, this is perfect. Like, I've never felt this way before. It, it, it's like Prince Charming and Cinderella. And then about five years later, I see them, and they say, you know, we got the wrong Disney movie. Should have been Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> right? I mean, you know what I'm saying. It happens. Unmet expectations lead to disappointment, leads to discouragement. It happens not just in marriage, but in friends, in family, co-workers. Listen, whatever type of relationship that you are in, if you have a relationship with people, you run the risk of having unmet expectations. It happens. Friends, family, co-workers, it happens. You ever do a group project with somebody? They'll never do their part, right? Unmet expectations. Now, it's one thing to have unmet expectations with friends and family and coworkers and all those things, but it's a whole nother thing when we have unmet expectations with God. What do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? How do you handle that sense of disappointment? What do you do when you feel like God has let you down in some sort of way? John the Baptist, you know, that we read about in this Matthew passage, he understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He come to take away the sins of the world. John knew that. He, he knew that without the, the shadow of a doubt. Um, uh, he knew. He was, in fact, he was the first person to point out that Jesus was. You know, as Jesus was coming up and he was baptizing people, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who come to take away the sins of the world. And, and then just a few short verses down, he, he ends up saying, he is the Son of God. And he proclaims it right there. He says, you know, he come to take away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was the Messiah. He clearly understood this. But when you get to that Matthew chapter 11 in that third verse, he sends a couple of his disciples, a couple of his people, and he goes and he says, are you the one who is to come or should we be expecting somebody else? How do you go? How do you go from saying he's the Lamb of God, he's the Son of God, he come to take away the sins of the world to, are you sure he's the one? How, how do you go from one to the other? Uh, Something happens in between those verses. Something happens. And so he sends people to ask Jesus this question. What happens? He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. Are you the one who's to come? What happens? Prison. Prison happens. John the Baptist finds himself in prison. He'd been there for about a year, maybe a little longer, but he finds himself in prison, and he'd been put there by this guy named Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. So he had a great role model, right? But, but, but Herod Antipas was living in adultery, and John the Baptist called him on it. 
He, he called it what it was. He, he, he called him out on it. And Herod Antipas didn't want to hear that. So to shut him up, he puts him in prison. If I lock him away, I don't have to listen to him. And he'd been there just about a year. And, and do you know what happens to you when you're in prison about a year? Man, you've got time to think. Now listen, John hadn't done anything wrong. John the Baptist, the only thing he had done was told the truth. And for that, he is put in prison and he's persecuted. He's soon going to have his head cut off. And it's going to be served as a gift to Herod Antipas' stepdaughter. And John's life is getting ready to come to an end. And he knows it. And he's feeling all this in this moment. And he said, is he the one or not? So he'd been stuck in prison. Not that he's done anything, but he told the truth. And with a year in prison, you've got a lot of time to think. And so he starts thinking. And he rolls over in his head this, 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 all these things. And the reality is the reason why that he sent and asked that question, there was unmet expectations in his life. I mean, he's John the Baptist. He's the first one said, there's the Lamb of God. What's he doing in prison? He says, surely if he is the one, if he is the one, he would have got me out of here by now. I wouldn't still be here in jail. I went, a year? Why am I still here? You ever thought this stuff? You ever thought about these kind of questions? Maybe your questions are like mine, and maybe they're a little bit different than that. They're the same thing, but maybe you phrase them different. Here's how I do mine. It's not how I expected this to turn out. This situation is not what I thought it was. I didn't expect to be here. I didn't think I'd find myself here at this point. You ever think those things before? I do. Because that's exactly what John the Baptist is thinking, and that's what causes him to doubt Jesus, even if for just a moment. He said, I'm not even sure he's the one. When Jesus replies to John the Baptist, he says, take this message back to them. He says, he says something to them that I think is very important for those of us who want to know what do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? The first thing he does is he says, look for what he is doing rather than for what he's not doing. See, sometimes we can get fixated on what God's not doing, especially that one thing. I mean, it gets stuck in our minds and it plays over and over like a cassette on repeat. And I'm not trying to diminish pain. I know there are things that are real and they hurt and they're deep and those are, are, are rock-solid things. I get that. I know life can be extremely difficult. But here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to say this with all the love that I have. You're going to end up missing all the beautiful things that God is doing if all you do is focus on what he's not Notice Jesus' response as we had read. He said, go back and report to John all that you hear and all that you see. He said, just look at what God is doing. He said, take a look around. See what God is doing. He said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf will hear, the dead is raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's a lot of good, but they were missing it. John had missed it. He says, I want you to go back, and I want you to tell John what God is doing because this is the evidence that God really is still at work. Well, what's happening in John's heart is human nature. It's human nature to look at what's missing rather than what's present. And you know how it is. We don't appreciate something until it's gone. And it's because we're so focused on what's missing, 
we forget to see what is present. We focus on the negative and we miss the positive. It's not just in our relationship with God, but it happens in marriages and in friendships and all those things. People get so focused on, on what their spouse isn't doing right, they miss all the beautiful things that they fell in love with when they first met. And this is a horrible condition of the human heart. And we tend to treat God in this same way. And in doing so, we miss all that he really is at work and at doing. And what I do, I talk to youth pastors from all over the country. And I have this one friend who, many years ago, we were talking about this thing. This family had lost a child in a tragic accident. Uh, one of the older, they had, they had four kids, and it was the oldest one. And, and so they had lost the child in, in this accident. And, and so, you know, he'd walked with them through this situation. And then as the youngest came up into his youth group, he was dealing with depression and anxiety and all those things. And he, through counseling and stuff, he got to unpack, uh, like, what was going on in his life. And, and he said, he said, uh, after this family had lost the older brother and everything, he said, I feel like I don't even exist anymore. All they do is focus on that tragedy. So they were missing what was in front of them. They had missed what the gift that God had taken. Now, I'm not diminishing that that's, a, that's horrible, and I never want anybody to go through that. But, 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 but this kid was being missed. So maybe it's because of pain. Maybe our hurts or our regrets, whatever it is, but we still miss it. We need to look for what God is doing, and you might be surprised what you're missing. I think the second thing that we need to find important in this story, uh, and, and I've heard this phrase my, basically my whole life, you know, fall forward, don't fall away. Because Jesus, in his response to, to, to John's disciples, he says, when you, when you go back, tell them all those things. But then right at the end, he adds this little, this little thing in, in, a, in Matthew eleven six. He says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. It's one of the most staggering verses in all of the Bible. I mean, this is Jesus talking. He said, blessed is the man that doesn't fall away on account of me. Like, how will we fall away on account of Jesus? But he actually anticipates that, that, that some people are going to be disappointed with him uh, because he doesn't do what they think he should do. They actually may fall away on account of Jesus, and he anticipates this. He knows that something that John the Baptist is struggling with, and, and that's why he says, go back and you tell him these things. And so I've heard this phrase my whole life, and maybe you have too, but I love it. Fall forward. You know, fall forward. Because what tends to happen is, is whenever we're faced with disappointment, we want to run away from that disappointment, right? And make a team. I ain't going to games. Why would I go to those games? They don't want me. Why would I want them? And so what happens is, is when we feel like God has let us down, we feel like he didn't do what we think he should do, we turn to our default, and that's we try to run from him. We try to turn from God, and we try to run away from him. And we do that because we think somehow by avoiding him, we can avoid the discouragement. But we can't. The problem is discouragement travels with us. It goes with us. You can't outrun disappointment. And then the whole irony in that whole situation is that the very one that we are disappointed with is the only one that can minister to that disappointment that lays in our hearts. So what happens is when that God doesn't show up, 
with, with what we hope that he would, we tend to get angry and we get bitter and we got this, this resentment that builds up in our hearts. So we pull away from God. And the problem is the only one who can deal with the anger and the bitterness is God himself. Fall forward. Don't fall away. Run to him. Don't run from him. We need to run to the only one who can help us in our time of need. Ted Turner. You know Ted Turner? I know of him. I don't know him. Uh, so, so Ted Turner's this, this media mogul, right? He even started one of the wrestling things and everything. And so he's had all this money and you see all this stuff. And uh, if, if you know much about him, you know that a big portion of his life, he's pretty much been against Christianity. Um, he, he, he really had, and he's been pretty outspoken about this. But if, you, if you've read his, his biography, early on, he was a Christian. And, and he went to church very regularly, he prayed, and, and all these things uh, uh, he, he did. Um, what happened? What happened along the way? Well, his sister, he had a sister, um, and she had a rare form of lupus. And he said, every day I would pray for her. I'd go to church, and I did the right thing, and every day I'd pray for her. And he said, after five years of praying every day, she still died. Nobody had answers. Christianity didn't have answers, so it crushed my faith. And it did. He ran from God from that moment on. So how do we do it? How do we fall forward? How do we do it when life isn't fair and we're going through a mess? You ever felt like you're just in quicksand and it's not getting better? What do we do? One thing we can do is we could say, God, I don't like it. I don't even understand it. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm upset. God, I'm in a lot of pain. But I believe that there's nowhere else that I could turn but to you. And I'm going to trust that you will accomplish your will and your purpose in my life in spite of my pain, in spite of my hurt, in spite of my regret. And I know that there's nowhere else that I could turn. There's nowhere else I could run but to you. You are my rock, my redeemer, redeeming me. That's how you start. That's how you start to fall forward. Blessed are those who don't fall away on account of me. If God has disappointed you, fall forward. Don't fall away. And then the last thing I want us to talk about um, is hold on to eternity. In our original story in John 12, 12, verse 16, the disciples didn't understand all of this, right? What, can you imagine? What's all this Hosanna stuff? What's all this celebration? What's all this, 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 this party about? Even at the crucifixion, they didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand it. They thought Jesus was dead, and he's not coming back. So what do they do? They go fishing. They turn back to their old lifestyle. They go back to what was comfortable, what they knew, and they thought, well, that was good. Let's move on. But it says only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things that had been written about him and that these things had been done to him it was when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven that it all made sense to him. It's because life is way more clear in the rearview mirror than it is in the present time, right? Hindsight, 2020. And so they were looking backwards. They were able to look backwards and sew things together, and it made more sense than it did in real time. 
But it wasn't until Jesus was glorified, it wasn't until he ascended into heaven that it made sense to them. All that to say this, sometimes things on earth won't make sense until we see the light of eternity. So, so hold on to eternity, because right now it looks like a mess. But eternity will make better sense of it. One of my favorite things is a quilt. Billy's mom had made this quilt. I sleep under it every night. I'll fight you for that quilt. Now, it's perfect, man. I don't, she may sneak and wash it. I hope not, because it is perfect. But I love this quilt, right? And, 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 and this is not that quilt, but, but, but you know about how a quilt works, right? They take these squares, right? And they, they sew them together. It makes this, you know, they take one pattern. Maybe they make six blocks or whatever, and they, they sew it together, and it makes this pretty quilt. And some people even display them up on the wall and, and different things. So, so, so uh, uh, quilt. You ever see the bottom of one? The mess, right? Just a bunch of zigzag threads and a bunch of knots. It's not pretty at all. You know why? The beauty's on the other side. The beauty's on the other side. So sometimes in life, it looks crazy. It's a zigzag bunch of mess. But the beauty is on the other side. Right now, we don't see it clearly at all. But in the light of eternity, one day... It's going to make sense. I read a book several years ago. Um, It's a surprise to me, too. But but I was going through a mess in my life, and one of my friends, he gave me this book, and it's a book by Max Lucada, and and I want to recommend it to you. It's called In the Eye of the Storm, and it's a great book about going through hard times. And I was going through what I felt like was the fight of my life at the time. And, and, and he gave me this book, and, I, and as I was putting this together, and, and, and as I come out of the funeral the other night from Gabe, I was thinking about this story that Max Lucada tells in this book. He says, there was a poor man, and he lived in this village. His only source of income was going into the woods, cutting down trees, hauling them back to the village, and sell to the people. A, very, a mere menial income for him. But he did have this one thing, this prized, precious horse that that would help him haul the wood out of the forest. And and he was so poor, I mean, he was so poor that constantly the villagers would come to him and they'd say, sell your horse, get you some money for yourself, it'll help you. But the man said, I could not sell this horse. It's like a member of my family and, and I just simply could never sell this horse. One day, the horse went missing. The people of the village come to the poor man, and they said, See, old man, you should have listened to us, and you should have sold this horse. Now you don't even have that horse that you could sell. You are cursed. This horse has been stolen. The man said, Say not that this horse has been stolen, only that this horse is missing, for we only see just a small fragment of this story. But then a few days later, the horse came back, and with him it brought 12 other wild horses from the forest. The people of the village come to the man. They said, you were right. We were wrong. You are a blessed man, not a cursed man, for this horse has brought 12 back with it. And so the man said, do not say that I am blessed nor that I am cursed. Only say that this horse was missing, and now he's returned, and he has brought 12 more. 
After that, this man's son was trying to break the horses that, had, that were wild. And in the process, he fell off of one of the horses and he broke both his legs. So the people of the village, they rushed over to his house and they said, You are a cursed man. We were right, you were wrong. For your son has fallen off the horse and broken both his legs. You are cursed. But the poor man said, Do not say that I am cursed, nor that I am blessed, but simply say that my son had fell off this horse and he broke both his legs. Because we can only see but a small fragment of this story. Shortly after that, the nation that they lived in, it went to war with a neighboring nation. And they drafted all the young men of the village into war, except for the poor man's son, because he had both legs broke. The people of the village rushed over to his house, and they said, You are right, and we are wrong. You are a blessed man, for your son broke both his legs, and now he could not be drafted into war. So the poor man said, Neither say that I am blessed or I am cursed, just that my son was not drafted into war. Because we only can see a small fragment of this story. Do you see it? Do you feel that? Do you understand what's happening? Sometimes life is a zigzag mess. Sometimes life is a bunch of twists and turns and knots. Sometimes even when we look at it, it does not make sense but we only know a small fragment of the story. I know that in my life, there have been many times where I say, I wished I could have. I wished I would have. Especially when it comes to my family. I mean, I'll say it, especially when it comes to my family. I know that I have been the giver of unmet expectations. And over the past few years, this has been the one thing that God has worked on me the most. I believe that right now, God wants to minister to some of you. I believe that right now, that God wants to talk to some of you who have had a hard time with life. Fights, regrets, disappointments, unmet expectations. God wants to minister to you today. So right now, I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. They're going to lead us in a song. And as they sing... I'm going to ask that if you want prayer, know this is a safe place, that you can come to this altar. Know that this is a safe place, that you could come and pray and be prayed with, that if you just slip out of your seat and come forward, there are people here that would love to pray with you. Now, this is not a prayer for salvation. This is not a, this is not a prayer for salvation. This is a prayer that God is going to unfold his ministering grace to your heart. And if you want to come up, that's great. That's awesome. And if you don't, that's okay too. If you're paralyzed and you hurt so bad that you just can't even move, know that I'm going to be praying for everybody that's in this room. But I don't want to leave here without giving you the opportunity for the Lord to administer His grace to our hearts. Life can be hard especially when we try to go it alone or we find ourselves running from the very one who can, the only one who can restore us, the only one who can make us whole, the only one who can, who can, who can pour out his love and his mercy. So, so right now in this moment, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that God's grace is sufficient for whatever it is you might be going through or have gone through or will go through. 
I'm going to trust that God's grace is enough for this day and for every day. Stand with me as we sing.